rest of the world's greatest, the best of the best, the cream of the crop can learn the best. Tips from the top, and when you're done, come join the family. Come join the team. Come join the family. It's music, jobs, and it's DYE. Come join the family. Okay, so welcome to At The Yard Podcast. Our very special guest this week is Paul Pacifico, who is the CEO of AIM, which is the Association of Independent Music, which is a not-for-profit trade body that exclusively represents the UK's independent music sector. Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? Good, good, thank you. So you were just saying actually off-air that you were actually based at Tallyard for a while, so this is a very familiar setting for you. It is. I, I was in Tallyard from pretty early days, uh, back when I was working for the Featured Artist Coalition, the FAC, uh, and we shared an office with the, the Music Managers Forum over at number 31, I think oh, it was. Yeah. I'm in the same office, and so were you, Matt. For I a was bit. for yeah, a while, yeah. I know it well. All yeah. the best people are It's in like a hallowed ground. I know, isn't it, I know. Um, <laughs> you come out of 31 and you're going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> How long ago did the FAC move on to Pastures New? I can't remember. It was it was after I left. It yeah, must I have been before I was here. I think definitely. it was. It was a couple of years ago because I think Lucy Caswell was still this. Yeah, sort of working with them then. Ah. Yeah, they moved into Camden, I think. Yeah, I can't quite remember, but yeah, they moved on to. I think it was a larger office from what I remember. Well, you never know. They might be back this way because people seem to come back. Like yeah. I do. It's I, true. You come back every week just I to do. see me. It's true. I miss you. I miss you. Um, <laughs> So, Paul, what we do on At The Yard is we talk to music industry uh, figures and ask them about their start in the industry, how they um, got to the role that they're in now, and talk a bit about what they're doing now, but also a little bit of background. So, um, can you talk us through how you started and what whether you were a musician, whether you had an inspiration of some kind? Mm. Uh, so, I, I come from uh, a family of musicians. Most of my, pretty much all my family were musicians apart from... Uh, my father, I guess, who I grew up with an elephant's graveyard of instruments in the house that my granddad had tried to teach my grandfather, uh, my father, and uh, had failed. <laughs> and, um, but it was great for me because there was this cupboard and I just used to go through it and there was every instrument you could think of in there. Like there were banjos and mandolins and squeeze boxes and, oh and all God. sorts of things, xylophones and, you know, glockenspiels. <laughs> and I used to just play with it all. And oh, wow. um, so my grandfather taught my brother and I music from a really early age. Uh, and I ended up... Um, uh, turning my back on the family tradition, um, falling out with traditional instruments like violin and saxophone, and I fell in love with the harmonica. And so when I was, uh, the summer I turned 16, I discovered the harmonica and just fell in love with it and became a harmonica player. Oh, and oh, wow. played in a bunch of bands. And then um, I was going to do my doctorate in philosophy, social and political thought, and become a harmonica player. Uh, but under severe parental pressure, I swerved and took a graduate job uh, which took me into kind of uh, banking and strategy consultancy for nearly a decade. And I'll, after a few years, I just kind of thought this isn't where I wanted to be at all. Mm. Um, so I set up a music business and ditched it. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Do you feel like you learned s- skills that were important to take into your business working in that industry? Do you think that was a, a necessary step to, to get to kind of where you are, your destination? Definitely. I mean, yeah. a lot along the way, I became a certified fraud examiner, and that's definitely helped me in the music industry. <laughs> um, no, I think Ooh, look, it, shady. I think everything. True. You, every, yeah. <laughs> everything you learn is is transferable in some way, yeah. uh, and I think for, uh, across all of our experiences in life, if you can if you can bring what you learn from everything to to the next challenge you face, I think that always serves you well. Yeah. Also, I think you need 
people with good business acumen who are also creative in the music industry because often you find a lot of creative people who maybe don't understand the nuances of the business side of things. 100%. Yeah. And it causes real issues. I mean, this is why we have so many problems with contracts and mm. splits and all sorts of things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's uh, massively transferable. Yeah. Um, and then what was the business that you started up, Paul? So I started, it was a kind of, it, we founded a, a collective of about 40 of, of the top session musicians in, in London. And um, uh, we, we started putting together shows. We started uh, promoting gigs and then doing bespoke kind of music commissions for people. Uh, and we ended up with a kind of full service music consultancy where we would advise We'd have clients from within the music industry, artists, labels, managers, and then a bunch of clients, brands from outside the industry that wanted to use music and weren't sure where to start. So we would be able to develop a concept for them, put it together and deliver it either live or recorded. So we have like a warehouse of gear, production team. Um, we can do work permits and foreign entertainers unit, tax returns, withholding tax, all that. So we sort of do everything as a bit of a one-stop. And it's been it's been great. It's been going about 15 years now. I have a little team that run that while I... Uh, I do my job at AIM. Oh, that's amazing. I had a little look at your website earlier, actually. You've worked with some pretty big clients. I saw Noel Rogers was on there. Um, is it different to, I guess it's different to sync because you guys commission different stuff, don't you? So mm. it, what sort of other businesses do you work with? When might I go to you? Um, so we do, we do things like uh, complex, we do a lot of complex multi-artist shows. So that could be, oh. for example, we did the launch of Team GB for the Olympics in 2012, oh, wow, um, where big. we had about 140 musicians on stage. Oh, wow. Uh, we did, we did, we've done some cool stuff over the years. We've just uh, done a series of, um, for 10 years, we did the um, the main annual fundraiser for Save the Children at the Roundhouse, which every year was like an 18 piece house band with 10 or 12 guest artists and they would cover kind of legends from different genres with contemporary artists who 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 wanted to honor those those legends uh, so it's been great but wow, how do you how do you amazing. yeah how do you go about getting those gigs though is it about pitching to people or have people through aim or through work that you've done in the past they know who you are they come to you for, for that kind of set up been doing it a long time You're doing it a long time <laughs> <laughs> i got a reputation it's worth, it's worth, no it's worth the <laughs> mouth because all of those kind of gigs everything we do in music actually and i think this is a really important point you know whether you're an artist or working for a label starting your own business um so much of what we do uh, relies on trust yeah yeah and right. you know if you commission someone to do something uh, an engineer if you're using a producer anyone that you book to do something you just you, you you've got to trust they're going to be able to deliver mm. and on the kind of money we have these days or in, in certainly in the independent world you can't just go back and do it again if it's not quite right you can't afford to you've got to get it right so you've got to work with good people with good relationships good reputations and a, and a really really professional mindset so mm. yeah i think i think without you know, joking aside i think that reputation piece is really really important yeah that's come up for us before in the podcast isn't it still saying that you know in the music industry it's really important that you make that good first impression because that person mm. that you see at that networking event who you didn't have the time for might in 10 years be you know some like the ceo of the next major mm. label and you might you might not get a job because of it yeah so it's, it's really important also though it's a very it is a very insular industry and everybody knows everybody yeah, you know somebody absolutely. has worked with somebody that you know i mean even being at tile yard you know everybody sort of runs into familiar faces in the cafe and yeah. reputations and and rumors do spread quite quickly so reputations made and broken in the tile yard <laughs> cafe <laughs> well, there is a gossip chain going on i'm saying nothing <laughs> um, what i thought though what's really great though actually about the collective that you that you've been doing as well is that the what people don't always see is that there's this 
wealth of incredible session musicians. I'm saying like people yeah, that can right. essentially put together the main act that you see. I think. I mean, I know so many people that have worked with major, major stars who are great at what they do, but they don't necessarily want to be front and center. But mm. they are. They're so professional. They could. They turn up on time. They deliver everything you need. And so to put that together and provide that as like the sort of top end entertainment is. Uh, well, it was a lot. Very. Um, yeah, showed a lot of foresight. <laughs> well, I, th I think also it's just, um, you know, we started in the Napster days, you know, it was 2003, four when we started the business and the music industry was in free fall hmm. and there were all these fantastic session musicians and the phone just wasn't ringing anymore. Hmm. Um, and, and we just kind of got creative about how we could pull them together, create a, a brand around them to, as like a hallmark of quality and uh, and proactively find ways to use their skills and, and get paid for it. Mm. Um, and over time, you know, pe clients appreciated more and more the kind of added value of that. And we were able to, to kind of grow our prices and, and really be, um, be an important source of revenue for, for some of these musicians, which was great. And mm. I think also the expertise we developed with, for example, these multiple artist shows, we were able to bring to bear for, for a number of charities. I mean, I, I mentioned Save the Children. Uh, where I think we must have raised, I think it was about 16 million over the 10 shows. Wow. Um, and I think until I added it up last year, I think we've raised, or we've done the music for fundraisers that have raised more than 80 million pounds for charity. Wow. wow that's that's really incredible. Cool. That's yeah. quite a well, figure, isn't it? It's an amazing thing to be able to do what you love, do it the very best, have that reputation, yeah. but then also use it for good and fundraise. I mean, it's it's kind of tick, 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 isn't it? Yeah, all it's way incredible. So... Obviously, you've still got that business, and that's still that's still you've got a whole team working behind you doing that. And then, after that, we then the next part of your journey was the FAC. Am I correct? Uh, yeah. So yeah, and then into the <laughs> FAC. So how did you land that job? And tell us a little bit about what you did there with the FAC. So I joined the FAC. I was one of the first uh, hundred members. I think I was the hundredth member of the <laughs> FAC, and I, I signed up because uh, one of the charity projects I'd worked on was uh, for the NSPCC. It was a show at the Albert Hall, uh, and we, it was great. Actually, we had a thirteen-piece band, hundred voice bespoke gospel choir, uh, some kids from a, an inner-city school in, in um, Newham, uh, Heather Small, and Earth, Wind, and Fire on the show that was a that was a cool show wow. and um uh one of the people on the charity committee was nick mason from pink floyd the drummer from pink floyd who also was one of the founders of the fac um and he turned around and said hey guys you know you've got to get involved in this new thing the fac so I signed <laughs> up um but didn't really engage that much over the years until um i'll tell you a funny thing i think i was in i was working in music probably for about 10 years before I would have described myself as working in the music industry. Um, for the first several years of the company, we were just working in isolation. We didn't really know anyone mm. like that we thought was in the industry particularly. Mm. We really thought of ourselves as outsiders mm. and we were making it up as we went along. We didn't have any kind of reference point. Um, we didn't you know, know how anything worked. We were just blagging. <laughs> and. Um, a, a, a kind of about everything but the music and, and just trying to use our common sense. And about 10 years in, I kind of thought, okay, I've got, to, I've got to get more into this industry thing. I've got to find out what it's about. And I went to, there was a kind of an event at Kensington Roof Gardens. And um, I remember it because David Cameron gave a terrible speech. Um, <laughs> oh I think it's when he said he loved Mumford and Sons. <laughs> oh, and, God, yeah. Ooh. And I got into it. It was the early days of streaming. And I was a big fan of streaming from very early on because I could see the banker in me, I guess, could see that although the numbers started small, that if they scaled, it would be a fantastic business. Mm. And the, the problem was scale, not 
yeah. the, un- the the sort of fundamentals. Mm. Um, so I was quite supportive of it early on, and I got into a um, should we say a full and frank exchange of views um, with Sandy Shaw, who 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 now is president of the FAC, was was a director at the time, was chair at the time, and um, and she kind of said, "Hey, have you heard of the FAC?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm a member." She said, "Well, come and talk." So I went along, and you know, we met up again and talked to them, and just got really involved from. I guess uh, the interest, my interest in being able to apply some of the knowledge I had from banking and strategy consultancy to the changing face of the music market and the the kind of this this rise of this new force in streaming and ideas that that actually new models could emerge and, and there was a very exciting future ahead. I really wanted to be part of the of advocating for a more positive positive future for the industry. Mm. So you could see that there were improvements that needed to be made or like structure that wasn't really there or didn't exist. Yeah, I just wanted to be part of the debate um, and and kind of just try and help figure out a way forward. I think that's, and that's, you know. Yeah, nobody seemed to really know, did they? I mean, I think it was always so well documented as well that the industry didn't see Napster happening, even though everybody else did. And it was mm. kind of like you dropped the ball on that, you know. And then I, I was saying, I think I've said this on a podcast before, I was at The Great Escape when the um, uh, Spotify were there for the first time before they'd really kicked off and they were giving this talk and there was like six people in the room and everyone was like, this will never work. <laughs> um, and now you look at it. But it's true, isn't it? Because you, you, there seems to be a general lack of regulation and... Um, a lot of old, you know, there's a lot of silos in place that don't tend to be changing and people can't really break into it and understand what it's all about. Um, I guess that's what you're saying is what you saw and what you felt when you were going along to these meetings. How far do you think we've come? Do you think it's are we, It's still a work in progress, obviously? I think, I mean, it's so easy to assume that the world you experience today has some permanence. And everyone's got comfortable with the kind of 9.99 a month. This is how it works, you know, in the mm. current paradigm. Yeah. My feeling is that we are very much in a transitional economy for music and, and we don't really know where it's heading. Uh, but we know that there are some seismic changes ahead. I think, you know, the, the, the influx of artificial intelligence, the opportunities of virtual reality and augmented reality. And I think, you know, 5G, which is ahead of us, you know, are, are the sorts of things that are going to really shake the tree once again. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I th- and this is, you know, for me, um, my, 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 I guess, focused area of interest through all the different things I've done is that meeting point between creativity and commerce, mm. where they meet, how, how they kind of interact, where, you know, how that can happen in a positive way, in a constructive way that, that delivers value. Like there's a balance as well that mm. is lacking Still, I mean, I think we we saw in the news this week that the labels are making what is it a, a million every hour or something from streaming. Um, that you know, and 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 the artists obviously aren't making wow, as much. Some of them. That's quite a figure, actually. Yeah, I yeah. Didn't, I didn't see that. Well, I think I, you know. Okay, so um, there's the 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 music industry feels like it's separated a little bit, a little bit more like the food industry, where you've got kind of the the massive multi uh, multinational supermarkets. And then you've got sort of everybody else, mm. a kind of everyone from could be like Fortnum and Mason down to like a farmer's market or, a, mm. or an independent corner shop, whatever it is. Um, they're, they're two very different worlds. And, and it feels a little bit like that in, in the music industry right now. I don't know how we're going to bridge that gap, but mm. there is, we know that digital markets tend to favor a, a massive concentration of wealth and monopolistic practices. Mm. Um, 
you know, and I, th- I think actually it would it's to all of our benefit to make sure that the pendulum doesn't swing too far, uh, both in terms of our access to our own fans, mm. uh, but also in terms of making sure that there's a, a broad diversity of of artists and content that, that is made, that's discovered, that's presented so that people have choice. Mm. And, that, yeah. you know, that next wave of of amazing music that none of us can foresee has a chance of breaking through. So do you think that's transparency then? Because there seems to be, one of the things that comes up from artists all the time that we hear all the time is, how do you get on Spotify playlists? How do you get on that new Music Friday? And nobody knows for sure, although there are theories obviously about, you know, updating your bio on Spotify and and all of that. But actually there probably is editors and there probably is deals with labels. And that does, that does kind of, give people from more um, diverse backgrounds and working class backgrounds less of an opportunity because they can't afford to pay the plugger and they can't, mm. they, they don't have the resources. Mm. So do you think transparency is is something that needs to be addressed? Um, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things actually. I think just to come back on a couple of points you just made, um, I'd, I'd be very sceptical about at an, an early stage artist paying someone to get them on a Spotify playlist. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I think that's, that's horror, point one. Horror there are stories. horror stories. Yeah. yeah. Well, we always say don't do it. Don't ever do it. But yeah. it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it is presented yeah. everywhere. Point, mm-hmm. point two I would make is how many, how many times have we all had the experience? You're walking down the street and you've put on an album or a song or a, or a playlist and it's come to the end and, and Spotify served you something. Mm-hmm. And you think, God, what was that? That was great. I love that. Oh, that sounds great. And you, trying to get your phone out of your pocket you're trying to find out who it was mm. and i i don't know if it's just me but by the time i get to my screen and i unlock it and i see who it was the track's finished it's gone <laughs> i never know who, the number of songs i've heard recently where i i, I thought they were great mm. i've got no idea who the artist was let's so let's i think it's really important to um to keep perspective on the fact that yeah everybody has this idea that a lucky playlist place can make them loads of money while they sleep like a lucky sink you know, everyone's on about, you know, we're talking about sync locks. Obviously, AIM, we've got our sync conference at the end of this month at the Barbican. And sync is really important, but keep it in perspective. Mm. Um, keep playlists in perspective. You know, remember that playlist places don't sell you gig tickets. I they agree. don't sell yeah, you merch. They but, don't. you know, I think it taps into the mental health issue because so many artists now, if they get a new Music Friday, release another single, then don't, then don't get it. And it is devastating for them and they put so much weight on it. And I've had to say recently to, to a friend I said you know what were the results of the last New Music Friday was it significantly better and she was like no so right okay well, so why are you killing yourself I, about this it's all you're doing is damaging your own mental health and what your and your expectations yeah I mean I think there's definitely some personal curation that's involved with this but from my my understanding and I've had friends in the same position and working here at Tall Yard everyone releases on a Thursday night and everyone's waiting for that Friday morning playlist and they're not just waiting for the UK one they're waiting for it to drop in every single European country mm. and um there, there is so much weight on it. it is actually such a giant but Back to what we were talking earlier about relationships. There's also that thing of, I actually think it's a balancing act. I think it's actually the song being good. They're looking at your algorithm. The AI is picking that stuff up as well. If you have a relationship with Spotify, that helps but doesn't guarantee it. Mm. Like so, it's it's a really difficult. It's a difficult thing, and it's a big thing to put mm. put weight onto as an artist. Yeah. Yeah, I think I one one final point I'd make on that is is that one of the wonderful things and complicated things about the music industry is we have complete freedom to set our own metrics for success. Yeah. And success f- for for any of us, it can be hitting a particular playlist, it can be 
selling a number of tickets. It can be the way we navigate a particular set of chord changes. It's it's totally up to us to, to, to define that. Yeah. And I think the more we own our own metrics for success, uh, you know, the better we'll be for it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly, actually. And I, I yeah. mean, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Because everyone, like you say, everybody's definition of it mm-hmm. is very different. And I think some artists want to, they want to get the Spotify playlist, they want to get the streams, they want to sell tickets, they want to, you know, all of that. And it's just not realistic, really, with the way the industry is structured, yeah. that all of that's going to happen at once, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, right, we're here with Paul Pacifico. We've got to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be back after this. Are you looking for the best music industry professionals to join your company? Well, why not post your job for free on UK Music Jobs? Simply register and submit your advert, and they'll do the rest for you. You can manage all your applicants via their insight tools, and the best part is it won't cost you a penny. Additionally, if you represent an artist, you run a music course, or you have a music industry event you want people to know about, why not submit the details for inclusion on the magazine? With a marketable database of over 60,000 subscribers and 300,000 unique visits per month, they can really help you find your audience. If you head on over to www.music-jobs.com UK, you can get more information. Hello, and we are here for part two of At The Yard, and we're here with the amazing Paul Pacifico. Um, and we would like to talk now, part two, a little bit about AIM, the Association of Independent Musicians, um, of which Paul is a CEO for. Um, we were just having a little chat there in the break about various events that we've been to um, with AIM, and they're always so well curated. Um, and I always, I always feel like what you guys are talking about is really relevant. Um, so tell us a little bit about your journey into AIM um and what's sort of going on with aim right now what's what sort of what do we need to be keeping a lookout for thanks fantastic so uh, i sort of i said before like my my i guess the the singular point of of interest for me has always been that meeting point of culture and commerce uh and an aim is is an extraordinary and very broad diverse community of everybody trying to figure out how to build a business in music today so um, as the Association of Independent Music, it started as independent labels, whoops, sorry, maybe 20 years ago. Uh, and over, the, over the, the, the period that the music industry has been evolving so rapidly, so has AIM and its constituency. So we have um, some of the, you know, we have about 800 members who are made up of some of the bigger kind of independent labels people will know, like um, Beggars, Warp, Ninja Tune, Domino, you know, all those kind of guys through to really specialist um, labels like Hospital, um, and Junibeats, um, AEI, others. And then we have other members who are perhaps publishing companies first or management companies first. And of course, a whole tier of self-releasing artists um, that again range from very successful uh, household names through to you know the emerging artists of tomorrow. And genre-wise, it's everything from you know hip-hop and soul to rock and classical via jazz. And you know, um, it's fantastic. It's a very exciting, innovative, forward-leaning community that are doing all different kinds of deals on different kinds of business models and just exploring all the time. So for me, it was it was an opportunity to kind of get into really into the heart of that conversation about yeah. how are we making this work? Like, how is culture relevant? How is what we're doing relevant? What's the interaction between what we do and the wider attention economy of the world outside um, our interface with technology? But then also the internal music industry conversation about you know what does good look like for us yeah um so it's been a really exciting journey and and now i'm just just started my my fourth year there 
um, and I'm still learning every day. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> I think one of the things I love most, well, there are lots of things I love about what you, you do with AIM, but um, it's, it's the conversations that you're having, they're all very open. Like I find you guys do a lot of free events that you can find on Eventbrite where you're kind of welcoming people into that conversation and getting them to know a bit about what AIM are about as well as, you know, important conversations in the industry. But then for members of which, of which Tired Education are, there are all these amazing benefits. You know, you do these larger scale events where you're sort of getting more in depth into it, all these amazing benefits, all this connectivity to all these independent labels. So um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's really, really important. And I would, I would recommend and advise anyone who is an independent artist to, to definitely look into AIM if they haven't already. Yeah. I mean, I was saying, I, I think for me, AIM Connected was, it was, I mean, you know, people might say, oh, it's similar to BBC Introducing and all the rest of it. But actually, you've got way more access to all the speakers. And I found when we were there, I, I did so much network networking, more so than I've ever done at any other conference. And I had a chance to meet some really interesting people. And that you don't always get. And I also think sometimes some of these conferences can be quite dry and irrelevant. <laughs> but everybody was very, as Lucy said, were very honest and direct. And people weren't weren't afraid to speak their minds for example what we were just talking about in part one about the playlists and paying for playlists we had Mm -hmm. a a former Mm -hmm. plugger from a label i remember this vividly who is now working in radio and she said do not pay don't do it and then tom (laughs) robinson from six music was doing the same thing so Mm -hmm. you know there was an honesty that you don't always get because sometimes i think some people use conferences and stuff just to promote their product which is an which is understandable it's what they're there for it's part of it um yeah, I would say Aim Connected is is deliberately pitched. Um, you know, we're partners with BBC Music on introducing yeah. live, uh, which we we love doing. Um, Aim Connected is pitched just a little bit further down the track. So BBC mm. Introducing is for people really targeted at people coming into the industry at that BBC Music introducing kind of level. Yeah, Aim Connected is then a, a step deeper. So we tend to have slightly more specialist topics, slightly higher level um, discussion. Um, and, uh, and and the point is because it's a, a, a community of, of fellow professionals, whichever side of the business you're kind of from, <laughs> I think there is um, an openness to wanting to talk to people and, and, and network and do business in a very a very positive way. The other thing I would I would say is that um, the independent community, we're together, we're about 25% of the UK's recorded music market. So it's it's really significant. But individually, all of us are actually quite a small fragment of that, even the bigger bigger brands within that. Um, so there's never this zero sum gain of, well, if you win, I lose, or if you get one more, that means I have to have one less. We really don't play that game Mm. because it it doesn't work like that for us. So actually, if you do better, that's an opportunity for me to do better. Mm. If you get onto a radio one playlist, that means they might be more open-minded to me being on there. Mm. So actually, um, we all benefit from progress. There's a real culture of sharing knowledge, insights, Mm. helping each other. And, and that's why when we talk about the aim community, that, that, that word community is very, very important for us. And, and there is that real sense of compassion and mutual reinforcement within the sector, which I think is is amazing, and, and we don't take for granted. Yeah, yeah. well, because I was yeah. going to say during those panel talks, you can see there's lots of people from lots of different, say, label services and and things like that. And everybody appreciates, I think, the scrappy nature of the industry and about how you've got to kind of. No, it's true though. I mean, you're sort of fighting <laughs> for your place, and you're that. trying to get your artist out there, and you're trying to do the best work. <laughs> it's but, a bit of a hustle, isn't but it? But traditionally, people sort of think kill your friends, you know, like <laughs> that the industry is a bit like that. And there are, yeah. you know, I mean, it exists for a reason. 
but actually the majority of people are willing to communicate and, and share help. knowledge and yeah, yeah it's great to see we just did a uh, we just did a trade mission to Moscow uh, we took some members with British Council out to Moscow and it was there was a moment where we had some um, uh, there were some meetings lined up with some of the very big digital platforms um, and the labels started sharing the meetings and saying oh no I've got a slot in so I said why don't you come with me and and the Russians couldn't believe it they just couldn't understand how labels who they perceived as being competitors would actually want to share a meeting to give each other the opportunity to meet those key people at the digital platforms in Moscow. But <laughs> Vladimir won't like that when he hears about it. <laughs> that's, that's very much in keeping with with this this ethos at aim of like you know look just if they like you in the meeting you know we we both need that knowledge we're both going to compete of course we're going to compete but you winning doesn't mean i lose yeah, yeah inclusivity and sharing mm. seems to be a key theme there yeah um i went down to your aim agm i think it was it was last year it was 2019 and mm-hmm. i was just saying to you earlier that um i found there was some super interesting uh hot sort of conversations that were happening that i wasn't expecting around sort of you know the music industry's impact on the environment so you guys you know when you talk about important conversations you you really are going global with it so i just i'd be interested to sort of hear a little bit more about about what was discussed there Mm, absolutely uh you know aim is a a trade association we're not for profit but we are about business but for us um you know business without context is meaningless yeah so actually that sense of a social responsibility uh is really at the heart of aim and its community uh, so, you know, over the years we've campaigned on um, gender parity, on, you know, really giving voice to underrepresented groups um, across the spectrum. Um, diversity and inclusion are very, very important to us. And, and of course, how can we not consider the impact of what we do on the environment in, in this you know, moment of such uh, awakening? Yeah. I think such mass awakening around these issues. And, and if not now, you know, when? Yeah. So uh, we within AIM, we were very fortunate. Our chair at the moment is um, Peter Quick from Ninja Tune. Um, and he was one of the founders of Music Declares Emergency. And um, we've got a AIM Climate Action Group, which look at all of the aspects of impact of our businesses on the environment and how we can work together to, to look to mitigate those. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, here at Tal Yard, you've got Key Production, who've been a really phenomenal partner in in looking at packaging and looking at um, you know um, supplier questionnaires. I think you know we look at the environment. So I'll go back to the agenda. But we we look at impact on the environment in terms of three spheres. So sphere one is my business and me. Like what can I do today to reduce mm. my impact on the environment? Once you've done that, you kind of look at sphere two, which is what am I? Who are my suppliers? Who am I buying from? And who with my buying power, my purchasing power, can I influence? Yeah. So if you're my pressing plant, if you're my, you know, whoever it might be, my distributor, I can put pressure on you because I, I'm your customer. And then sphere three is is our impact on the wider world. And, you know, and in the music industry, I think we do have a responsibility. We have a unique voice, unique impact, and an amazing opportunity to influence society, whether that's through government, through individual people. There was a statistic. We work with a charity called Client Earth, which is an amazing charity. And um, they had a statistic that I think it was something like, I can't remember, but it was something about like 44% of people on social media follow a musician and only 16% follow a politician. <laughs> so there is, wow, we have this incredible reach. And yeah. I think we need, yeah. to, we need to use it, but we must also, we're mindful of the fact that anyone that tries to do something at the moment is often called out as a hypocrite. Mm. Yeah. So number one, we have to accept that in the climate debate, we are all hypocrites. There's no way around that. Yeah. Uh, but number two, if we can 
give people self-confidence that they can get their house in order and then speak out i think that's really helpful yeah wow no that's great I think so. And I think, you know, about about sort of artists having having that voice. I think I think the the key thing with that is authenticity as well. It's just just being open and it's being honest about those conversations. Yeah. Although, you know, not all the artists can do what Taylor Swift did, which was she had to make a documentary in order for people to believe that she had a political stance and felt strongly yeah. about something. You know what I mean? Because yeah. like you say, the right wing media mainly yeah. will take someone down for being, you know, a hypocrite for doing the private jet and the big tours and all that jazz curiously i was actually watching um it was a very small documentary um last week about cloud storage and how streaming is having one of the biggest impacts on the environment well not just sort of musical streaming but netflix because you have these huge plants and like amazon own a bunch of them actually um and i just never realized that before just how something that can just you know sort of just transfer I guess pixels to your phone has such a large impact yeah it's it's a really complicated area because I would say actually a lot of the big technology companies generate their own power through renewables these days so um, you know even though we we in the music industry have had a uh, um, a a checkered relationship with some of the big tech platforms uh, on this issue some of them are so much on the front foot and actually that's amazing um, YouTube for example I believe now is all on renewables all of their their server farms and i think um you know so there are basic things we can do i'm going to just briefly plug one thing that i think everybody listening should do there's a (laughs) there's an initiative called the creative energy project and aims partnered up with uh, mde with um, bafta and others and it's effectively it's a scheme whereby um a completely renewable energy company can tender to supply your electricity so if if anyone's listening to their podcast um, at the moment the supplier is a company called good energy they're amazing. All of their energy is totally renewable and it's a fantastic source of power. So for your home, for your office, it's one thing you could do tomorrow to have a direct impact on your carbon footprint is just swap electricity suppliers. I'll be making a phone call tomorrow. Don't know about you, Matt. <laughs> Sold. Goodenergy.co.uk. There. there you go. <laughs> cool. So what else is coming up for AIM at the moment? <laughs> um, so we've got the end of this month is, you mentioned AIM Connected, which is our big business building conference. The end of this month, we have our global sync market, which is called AIM Sync. Um, and that will bring together a whole bunch of key people from the global sync industry. So the use of music in games, film, TV, advertising, you know, all those other uses of, of music, which is such an important source of licensing revenue for the industry. And uh, we'll all be gathering at the Barbican on the 30th of March. So come see us there. <laughs> I think I'm going to be there. I don't know about you, Matt. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. No, that does look really interesting. I mean, sync is another hot topic, isn't it? I mean, mm. so many independent musicians are sort of looking to sync to be a way to sort of generate their revenue. So I think that's a really important conference for people to go to, to understand the mechanics of sync, really, because yeah. some people don't know necessarily. They're just kind of pitching things and hoping that something lands. But but I think it's important that we, we talk about but it. But even though, well. I mean, sometimes it's it's even getting to that point where they can pitch, you know, yeah. th- because there's a lot of services that say, you know, sign up and we'll send your information and your music or whatever, but you don't really have a guarantee there. I mean, it's that yeah. it's that kind of in with the decision maker. Well, that's, that's it's really yeah, hard. That's why we kind of, it is a conference, but that's why I call it a market because I love the idea that actually the buyers come so you know the decision makers are there the music supervisors are there the people from these brands are coming so we have we have disney we have xbox we have all kinds of really high level music supervisors the people the team behind um sex education on netflix they're going to be there so it really is an opportunity 
to um, in a in a smaller conference environment. It's not like one of these mega conferences with thousands and thousands of people. It's actually really human scale, and you can get in front of these people. You can have you know straight conversations with them. Say this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. Is there anything of interest here? And and it's amazing what can happen. I certainly know from feedback in the past. I think last year. We tracked just with a handful of labels, five million pounds worth of sync business being done at that conference. It's oh, definitely, wow, that's yeah. I mean, it's becoming such a huge part. I mean, it's like we were saying about playlists and stuff. All the new artists absolutely gunning for the Love Island sync, you know, <laughs> even though you're not really going to get much money for it and it's just going to give you a bit of a boost on streaming numbers. But there it's was a good this exposure. Isn't no, it, this is it, but yeah. it was just that thirst for it. And I think mm. that we're going to see more and more of it. I mean, Sex Education, as you mentioned, has got such an amazing soundtrack. That is amazing. I, think, I actually heard Matt Biffa do a talk about how he synced the music for that and it was incredible. I think that music is. supervisors these days, I mean, in terms of weaving the right songs, especially new music, into the narrative of a show that airs the day before. That is extraordinary, the way yeah. that they pick exactly the right music. I know. You know. I kind of think I should have been a music supervisor. I would have loved that job. It looks like so much fun. I think it's very <laughs> stressful. <laughs> it's probably more likely. But, but you know, it's 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 creative in itself, isn't it? Where you're able to marry sort of like something visual, something beautifully visual with something that's audio. Hmm. I mean, it's... In a way, it's alchemy, I think. I, I agree with you. I think as well, and I don't know how you feel about this, Paul, but you know, it goes back to one of the things we first said when we started chatting was about how it's important it is to have personal relationships with people because I think some of the most successful sync opportunities come about from relationships between a creative, an artist, and a producer, or a writer, or a director, or somebody that they've met just, you know, not necessarily through the hard sell, but through the creative process. Yeah. I think that often is the case. Well, look at look at artists that, that form really good relationships, long-term relationships with labels. I mean, that, yeah. it's a similar process. And, you know, mm. the whole A&R process is, is such a delicate, nuanced conversation, mm. but that can add so much value yeah. and just be, you know, career-defining in some respects. Yeah. People were saying that um, A&R doesn't really exist anymore. How do you feel about that? Do you agree? I think there's a lot of confusion over what A&R is, actually. <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> we, we had a whole discussion about this around uh, BBC Music introducing live the Tobacco Dock event in uh, in the autumn. Yeah, we were there, actually. It was great. So we partner on the A&R Feedback Centre. There was a big discussion about, well, what if people come and they're expecting A&R? We said, well, yeah, there will be some A&R, but actually the young people coming into the industry... I think A&R is a label. It's just it's what they see as the interface between the artist and the label, and to some degree, that's correct. So, you know, I I was happy and comfortable that we were using A&R in the loosest possible sense, in the kind of you know the the kind of retail, you know, the sort of mm. general public's understanding of A&R sense. In other words, just come and give me career advice. I'm an artist trying to get into the industry. Help. And it might be that you you want to play a track and get some advice on on the production, the sound, the the style, the approach, mm. and all of those things. And it might be actually that that's not what you need at all. You might need that, but actually, a little bit of direction in terms of career guidance or a bit of brand or management. Yeah. Maybe maybe a key contact in a particular area. Maybe yeah. that's yeah. what you need. But I I think there's confusion over the term. But A and R as it as it probably as it properly is is by no means dead. It's it's still an essential part of development. 
Yeah, I would say I'd agree with that actually because working here at Tollyard and being woven in with, with various labels and publishers here and we actually throw an, an, a monthly event called the A&R Sessions mm. um, where we bring in sort of an industry A&R professional and then people can come by and play a track and receive feedback and off the back of that we've had signings um, we had actually a woman a girl called That Girl Is Lauren and she signed to a sync company and is now just powering through the industry so all of that off of one A&R listen mm. so I definitely think it's still relevant mm. well we had I think we had three artists signed to labels at the BBC Music introducing event oh wow that's um, amazing yeah last year and I think and we did we did an A&R lounge down at Brighton Music Conference on the dance side and I heard this morning I haven't I haven't verified it but one of my team told me today that I think it was 13 or 14 artists got signed at the conference as a result of that A&R lounge Wow, that's amazing. Which as is well. astonishing. On one song. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> like, who's got that money? That would be nice. Um, I, I kind of have an old fashioned view of AR, which I really like the idea of and the concept of, which is they find you know an artist who they really bond with and they are on the same level with, whether it's, you know, musically or. I think back in the day, probably more music related really had a lot of faith in in their songwriting and voice and all of that the uh, A&R will nurture the artist within the label and then the label starts to look at the artist more as a brand and then the A&R gets sacked and then the artist is left afloat you know it is a kind of now it's definitely evolved because it is about being a manager and a counsellor and a brand manager and a social media manager you know you've got to sort of think about all of these different um, aspects so to me it seems like A&R is technically still called that but many many things now but you mean they're looking for different things they're looking at numbers and you know instagram rather than just going to a gig but they're also managing they're also managing a lot you know it's it's a lot of well i think you've got there you've got creep between you know what what is actually the the anr process and what are the tasks that people with the job title anr are expected to do by their employer And and i think again those are two slightly different things yeah i think you're completely right but we all are, we're all expected to do more, aren't we? Yeah, days? well, this is a multitask. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, well, I think we're going to break off for one more small break here and hear a quick more word from our sponsors. And when we're back, we're just going to um, wrap up here with Paul. We're going to ask you, I think we should do a little pop quiz. What do you reckon? Yeah. Yeah, I think we're going to shoot off a little pop quiz. Um, so we'll be right back. Tyler Education offer validated one-year postgraduate MA programs and a suite of short courses that provide you with unrivaled learning from leading international practitioners based at Tyler London, the largest independent music community in Europe. Some of our MAs include commercial music producer, commercial songwriting and production, commercial music producer online, MA design, MA international music marketing and MA music business. If you want any more information, just visit www.tylardeducation.co.uk or you can email me, jamie at tylardeducation.co.uk. Okay, um, and we are back for our final segment with Paul Pacifico from AIM on At The Yard. This has been a great podcast so far. Very insightful, Paul. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, So I just wanted to wrap up a little bit because a lot of our listeners are people that perhaps are sort of looking to get into the industry or just at the starting point in the industry, really. Um, So what advice would you give to anyone sort of starting out? Okay, so as as an artist per se, if you was a young artist, obviously join AIM. (laughs) (laughs) I think think within reason, I I wouldn't shamelessly plug AIM, but I would say AIM is a place where it's all about, you know, figuring out how to try and build your business. Yeah. So, and you mentioned some free resources earlier, and they're definitely worth it. We at the end of last year we published uh, a free guide, which is a startup guide to music business. Okay. 
And there's also a distribution guy called Distribution Revolution, which is about the, the current distribution landscape in the UK, which I think a lot of people find confusing, particularly at those early stages. Um, so there is a lot of stuff there if you're starting out that you know you don't have to shell out your money straight away. There's a lot of free stuff that you can plug into to just start figuring it out, which, which is, I think, kind of where most people start. There's not an easy point of entry to the music industry. I'd say two things about it. I'd say um, you do have to feel your way. Um, ultimately, uh, our job is to make something from nothing and figure out how to commercialize that. Hmm. Yeah, and and that's true for all of us individually. So you got to figure out, you know, if you want to get started in music, what are your skills? What can you do? How can you just get started? There are so many tools out there for us all to use. Mm. You know, take advantage of them. Just get something going. Get something happening that shows people that you can just kind of put some heat into something. Yeah. And, and if you can do that, then you start to show that you've got value to people and you can, and then whether it's starting your own business or finding a job with somebody, any of those processes you go through, if you just, if you just bear that in mind, that kind of something from nothing and commercialize it, you know, and just see if you can, you can add some traction to something, a little bit of heat. So initiative, you need yeah. to really focus is. on it. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, and would you would you say looking for well, I mean, we spoke a bit about networking. How is, how important would you say that is? I mean, you know, we've we've touched on this a couple of times during during this conversation that that music is still a people business. Yeah. Um, and and networking is crucial. Um, we all assume that you know everyone's supposed to know how to network, and it's we talk about this at the AIM team a lot. In fact, we we did some networking training as a team, and then now we offer it to members, and it's it's really popular. Because you don't, you know, it's quite daunting. You go into a room full of people, and particularly, like I said, the, for my first decade in music, I didn't, I wouldn't have said I was in the music industry. I'd have stood at the edge of one of those rooms and gone, oh, I don't know anyone here. Mm-hmm. And they all seem to know each other. <laughs> and I think, you know, figuring out just one step at a time, don't, like in all things in life, don't, you know, don't expect too much too soon. Set your own metrics for success and be comfortable with those. And just take it one step at a time because. Um, I think it's true as, as a musician and, and now in business, I really believe, you know, gigs breed gigs. You know, you just get a little something somewhere that leads to something else. And then before you know it, you're three steps down the track and you look back and think, oh, <laughs> it's come a long way. <laughs> Amazing. I might actually come to one of those uh, networking workshops, to be honest. Yeah, we generally do them in the lead up to Christmas, <laughs> the Christmas party season. Uh, I mean, even, even, you know, and I think we do our fair share of networking, Matt, it's still possible to feel daunted. I'm just so too lazy now to network. That's the thing. Like, it's not the <laughs> chatting bit. I'm good at that. It's just the getting up and getting out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're a veteran. It's okay. Oh, thanks. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, well, I think that pretty much uh, wraps up what has been an amazing podcast. Thank you so much, Paul. For That's been my pleasure. Thank, Thank you for having me. Come join the team. Come join the family. It's me.